are three things this story can teach us about living in a world where poets and prophets are one and the same. And that's all I'm going to tell you before we begin. Leave my home. 
I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. singing the opening this week. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. I know singing is usually your thing, Leslie, but I felt really strongly about this one. So in case anybody in our listening audience is unfamiliar, the opening song is an extremely old folk song that was initially passed on from singer to singer beginning in the 1800s. Really, really old. Mm. Uh, It's called Where Did You Sleep Last Night? The most recognizable early version of this song was recorded by folk and blues artist Lead Belly in 1944. Um, but most people recognize the song today because Nirvana covered it on their episode of the 90s MTV series, MTV Unplugged. And Nirvana's episode of Unplugged is arguably the greatest episode of that show that exists. Absolutely. I don't think anybody <laughs> can argue that. It's like yeah. a revelation. Go find it online if you haven't watched it when you're done listening to us because it's going to sit very differently after this. Mm-hmm. Nirvana just really like levels the playing field when they are kind of stripped bare and playing with next to nothing, which was, I think, kind of surprising. The music is naked and it's great. And Kurt's vocals are painfully haunted and they like just don't leave your soul for weeks. It is said that his cover of the song we did in the opening hit a nerve because it's the only one that seems to be displaying grief and in the perspective of the girl in the song as opposed to just like a third-party omniscient narrator. And people found that really evocative. Mm. And it makes it far more of a work of art. The song is also about an ominous unsolved murder, so it seemed kind of like a no-brainer for us to open with this Yeah, week. for sure. <laughs> and thanks, as always, to John K. Diddy for creating a version of the song just for us. We had a great time making it for you guys. And maybe we'll, we'll find a clean version of it without the spoken words. Okay. I just want it for me because I had fun with it. So anyway, moving on. So here we are now for the second installment of The Life and Death of Kurt Cobain. If you have not listened to our first episode on this topic, I want you to pause this one and go back and listen. There is a lot of relevant stuff in there that we would really like you to know moving forward. Or you know what? Just stop this one and then start from the beginning when you're done so that you can, like, get the whole picture. Mm -hmm. We'll We'll take two clicks or whatever. That's fine. Yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah. I'm going to bulldoze the business a little bit this week so we can get to the story real quick because I know everybody's waiting for it. Please send your girls some validation by leaving us a five-star rating and or a friendly review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or both. Mm. It is the single most important thing you guys can do for us. This is a very saturated market, and if we want to move forward at all, there has to be a demand for it. If you want more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can also support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you'll get access to a ton of extra content, a little gifty from us, our weekly video after show host, Mortem, special merchandise offers, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. Also, don't forget that we do have merch. It's super cute. And there's a link to purchase some of it on our website and all of our socials. Go out there in the wild and represent We Would Be Dead. And yes, cute. please. Absolutely. 
And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply engage with us via social media, toss us a like or a comment, share when you're listening, post about your favorite episode, share any of our content, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell that one coworker that really gets you that you kind of wish would become your friend in real life. What's their name? Oh, um, Amy. Amy. She hang out with Amy outside of work. Yeah. She's great. She's really nice. I know. Then your friends and Amy, who will hopefully be your friends soon, can become fiends and we can all <laughs> hang out together. And I think uh, that's it. I know we're eager to get back to the story. Leslie, is there anything you would like to add before we begin? Well, Holly, I, uh, you know. My fingers are crossed. I'm so excited. There is one thing. <gasps> yes, what is it? Okay. It has to do with our validation. I'm so excited. So we talked about it last week. We I did. Think. I can't I think remember. we did. I think it was <laughs> last week. We do now have a shirt in our merch store that represents our validation. <laughs> yes, our validation and, merch is so yes. good. <laughs> and you could wear it loud and proud. It has like fun 80s vibes yeah. to it. <laughs> it's so good. Oh my God. Yeah. I um I actually want that now as our um I want to get like a black light or not black light what is it oh the, the little neon, the neon sign. sign we need that for sure that says validation I think that would be perfect in here yeah agreed put it like above the door or something yeah perfect <laughs> guys it's so good you have to look at it <laughs> all right then you had something good I had, this week I had it yeah so go to our merch store um oh and on so this week it comes out on Tuesday our episode right mm-hmm. So on Friday is the start of President's Weekend. Okay. And we have a 20% off sale going on in our merch store. So that's Friday, February 18th. I figured it's payday. That'll be a great day. And be the the president of the fiends. Yeah. Yeah. Get your validation shirt. Get your Oh My God Winston Churchill shirt. Very presidential. I didn't realize how hilarious that is to actually see on somebody in the wild until – uh, Dr. Lisa. Oh my God, Dr. I'm Lisa. It. It, it's so it's such a fun shirt, and it looks so cute on her. But also, it it's just like Winston Churchill. Yeah. Oh my God, Winston Churchill, <laughs> and anyone else is probably like, what? I don't know, but I love it so much. It makes me really happy. <laughs> yeah, so good. All right, so that's my news this week. Awesome news. So go buy some merch um, and be president of our hearts. <laughs> Adorable. Thanks. All right then. On with the show. After the discovery of Kurt dead in his home by electrician Gary T. Smith, the media exploded. As I reported earlier, and I have since confirmed, it was a co-worker of Gary's, not Gary or his brother, that called local Seattle radio station KXRX-FM. Yeah, with what he referred to as the scoop of the century. Yes. Mm -hmm. The radio station was a little reluctant to make the announcement since, as I said before, they were not actually a news outlet, but on-air personality Marty Reimer took to the microphone to tell Seattle that their greatest export since Starbucks had died. Sadly, because the reporting began immediately after the discovery of Kurt's body, other stations quickly picked up on the news, as did reporters from all other manner of news outlets. But it's strangely fitting that the radio grabs it the quickest. I, yeah, I thought that too. That's just kind of their vibe. That's who would want to know. Yeah. DJs were also, some of them were pretty vile and quick to shout really bad incendiary things like, these are direct quotes, he died a coward and he left a little girl without a father. 
Mm. I'm guessing this was for attention or ratings because there is the mentality that no press is bad press. But personally, I think it's despicable and tasteless. Well, I think that's hard because if it is, I mean, their assumption right away is that it, you know, it was suicide. That's right. what they're hearing. Yeah. And that's a lot of people's take on it, that it is a coward's yeah. way out. And, I guess you're right. And they get angry right away. So that's. I don't know that they were necessarily saying it for ratings more more so than their per, their yeah. own personal feeling about it. Yeah. And I suppose, like, your feelings are valid, whatever they are. I would argue that suicide is, um, in the mind of the person who enacts it, a selfless act. Mm-hmm. They really, most of the, I can't speak to all people who end up right. in this situation, but a lot of them especially survivors, go on to say that they felt that by taking their own life, they were lifting a burden on the other people in their life. Right. I think that's where a lot of the family that's left, mm-hmm. they that's where they have to get to. But I think it's a yeah. hard journey for them to get oh, there. Oh, absolutely. And they should take all the time and mm-hmm. therapy and talking and whatever they need to heal them in the whole wide world. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Shouting on the radio like that was probably kind of hurtful to some people, especially because members of Kurt's family and close friends heard it first from the radio. Right. So this includes Kurt's sister, Kim, and his mother, Wendy. Wow. Mm -hmm. They both learned that Kurt had died from a radio announcement. That's horrible. Yep. Wendy, devastated, remarked immediately on how Kurt had, quote, gone and joined that stupid club. Mm. The club she's talking about is, of course, the 27 Club. It's not real in the sense that there are meetings and the members have jackets. Rather, it is a collection of influential musicians who have died at 27 years old. Music biographer Charles R. Cross, who wrote Kurt's biography, Heavier Than Heaven, also wrote, quote, The number of musicians who died at 27 is truly remarkable by any standard. Although humans die regularly at all ages, there is a statistical spike for musicians who die at 27. There's never been any, like, scientific data that mm-hmm. tells us why or how. It just is a thing. Members of the 27 Club include Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, of course, Kurt, and uh, most recently, Amy Winehouse. Mm-hmm. Detectives, police officers, and assistant medical examiner Nicholas Hartshorn arrived on the scene shortly after Gary's phone call was made and photographers were hot on their heels. Detectives photographed the scene and collected evidence then secured Kurt's body and took it to the King County Medical Examiner's office where Dr. Hartshorn was to perform an autopsy. Kurt's wife, Courtney Love Cobain, the lead singer of the also incredibly famous and influential rock band Hole, was at the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles where she had checked in just a day earlier. She was notified by the authorities and immediately checked out to make her way back home. Meanwhile, Kurt Loder told the world that their lost boy, angry young man, expressor of suburban rage and internally guilt-driven sorrow, had died. Nirvana's music flooded the airwaves and all eyes were on Courtney Love. Grunge music's serving queen regent, if you will. Courtney was complicated herself, a volatile presence that people seem to either love or hate, and they still really kind of seem to be very, she's very polarizing. I don't know that there are a lot of people that just feel wishy-washy about her. Um, if they if they give any thought to her at all, you know, right. I guess there are people out in the world that are like, mm, I don't care. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there isn't a lot of middle ground. And some people call Kurt and Courtney the 90s Sid and Nancy, which we'll get right back to in a minute. Some people felt like they were gasoline in a match, full of potential apart and full of destruction together. 
And I did, I come back around to Sid and Nancy, but I'm going to hit it right now, actually. Um, I did poll our listeners to see if they knew who Sid and Nancy mm-hmm. were. And some of you did, and some of you didn't. So Sid and Nancy are Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. Sid Vicious was the bassist for the Sex Pistols. He was actually the second bassist. Um, super young, super influential. This is a very influential punk band, in case you also don't know who the Sex Pistols are. Came out in like the mid to late 70s when punk was huge in Britain. And Sid and his girlfriend, Nancy, had this like volatile, incendiary, tumultuous relationship where they just fucking did drugs and fought with each other. Mm-hmm. And after, um, I believe it's after Sid left the Sex Pistols, he and Nancy moved into the Chelsea Hotel in New York. Very famous, very grimy. We'll do a Chelsea Hotel episode yeah. at some point in time, and it will be really fun. They moved in there and basically just did drugs and sat around and had friends over. And then one night um, they had a party, and the next day hotels – I think it was hotel staff – or somebody came in and discovered that Nancy Spungen was slumped against the toilet and had died of a penetrating stab wound to her stomach. Mm. And, of course, Sid was arrested for her murder immediately. He was the only other person in the room with her, and he was released on bail. But before he could even ever go to trial, Sid killed himself of a heroin overdose, Mm. saying that um, in the note people revealed – his mother actually revealed later that he had made a pact with Nancy, and if one of them was to die, the other one had to go too. Okay. Yeah. There's a great movie called Sid and Nancy. Gary Oldman plays Sid Vicious. Yeah. Uh, Courtney Love is in it. Yeah. She plays Nancy Spungen's best friend, though. She doesn't play Nancy. It's very young Courtney. It's one of the first things she's, she ever did. She mm-hmm. looks totally different. I forgot this part. Did they find out who actually killed her? Do you, no. do you think it was him? No. Um, well, he was arrested for it. Mm-hmm. So obviously that was what they thought. But a trial never happened. And then after Sid died, they just dropped it. They just even gave up. The suicide note doesn't seem like No. And also that. there are a lot of people that theorize it was a third party who came in like looking to steal drugs from them or steal uh, something and then Nancy caught them and so he stabbed her. Right. He or she. We don't know. Or they. Whoever they were. And the other theory is that Sid ended up killing her but he was so strung out on drugs that he didn't even know he did it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, I think that's kind of like the theory they push in the movie, if I remember correctly. I haven't seen the movie in ages. It is really good, though, if you guys are looking for a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can link Sid and Nancy if you want. <laughs> anyway, that's just a little side note because people compare them to Sid and Nancy so much mm-hmm. that it's kind of worth knowing exactly what they were. And they were punk rock royalty who ended spectacularly badly. Right. But we haven't met Courtney yet. When we left off, Nirvana had just formed. Their first album, Bleach, though a critical darling, had gone nowhere with the fans. They took on dynamic drummer and national treasure Dave Grohl. and Sweet baby angel. I know, he's a national treasure. (laughs) All the while, they were rehearsing and writing new music. Kurt's lyrics were dark. They were kind of beat poetry filled with simple, arresting stream-of-consciousness style thoughts and repeated phrases. Nirvana's music captured a desperate, frustrated, small town, suffocated, tobacco-stained depression that, though they didn't know it at the time, an enormous amount of people were going to identify with. Something else had happened during these formative years of Rock's angstiest band. At 19 years old, Kurt had discovered heroin, an angry mistress who would follow him all the way to the grave. There are so many mixed reports about how and when Kurt began to use. I'm going to tell you this, nobody knows. There's no there's no definitive this is the moment. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a different story. I'll tell you this, though. It wasn't with Courtney. Though they did go on to use together, mm-hmm. they both discovered the drug on their own. 
And the earliest records I can find of Kurt using are from 1986. And I believe this is from Chris Novoselich, who said that he saw him getting into it and warned him that if he continued to use, it was going to be his undoing. Mm -hmm. That's what um, the members of the Melvins would also say. Yeah. And so this was before he formed Nirvana and he was following those bands. Right, right. They they let him kind of come on and— not even, not really work with them, not work for them or anything mm-hmm. like that, but he just followed them and was learning from them. Yeah. And at certain points, they were like, they wanted to kind of move themselves Distance. away from him because he was getting kind of bad. So yeah. I think he had those up and downs from that time. Absolutely. Which would make him what? What would that be? Like 19, 80, 18, 19? 86 is 19. Yeah, 19 so. is when I have. Most I found most sources say he started using. He was 19. And that's like right after he dropped out of high school and Mm -hmm. would have been hanging out with those guys. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And a little bit about heroin. It is the quickest fix out there. Once it is injected, the user will feel what they call a rush within seconds. The rush is a warm wave of numb, like, safety. They say you feel just, like, safe and euphorically oblivious to everything. Mm -hmm. It's just like a sparkly cloud almost. And it lasts for roughly just 10 minutes. That always blows my mind. But during those 10 minutes, inside your mind, everything is all right and nothing hurts. But outside, you're like a drooling, stooping, partially unconscious mess. Some say Kurt turned to heroin because of the depression Kurt suffered. It was well known that Kurt would go through bouts of agonizing, life-draining depression. Heroin is, oh my God, there's so much evidence that heroin and depression are bedfellows. Mm -hmm. Depressed people turn to heroin all the time for its ability to numb out their mind. Some also think maybe it was the bipolar disorder that Kurt was speculated to have, whether it was formally diagnosed ever or not, kind of remains unknown. There are a lot of sources that say Kurt was diagnosed as bipolar in his childhood. There are no sources that say when or from whom or what they did about it. So I kind of have my doubts that a formal diagnosis ever occurred. Okay. Maybe it was suggested and they never followed up. That's possible. But if he did, it would have dotted periods of depression with states of mania. And mania isn't like a happy time. A lot of times it is misrepresented as the opposite of depression, a burst, but it's like just a burst of ecstatic energy. But it it kind of isn't. It's simply an extremely elevated, excitable state. But it can take on any number of feelings and expressions. It can be rage, it can be joy, it can be paranoia and suspicion or creativity or like extreme philosophical rabbit holes, you name it. I mean, we saw this in Elisa Lamb's case. Mm -hmm. In bouts of mania, people are simply possessed by their own thoughts. And I mean, if you look at Kurt and how he wrote and what he did, I can see how you might put that together. Mm -hmm. He was also prone to writing like furious letters to people that he didn't like end up sending, but they'd be like pages and pages and pages of why he was angry with them or whatever which is a, a totally manic thing to do. Mm-hmm. Once again, heroin would be seen by someone who was suffering from these things as a quick fix for both of these states. It can chill you out or it can make you numb. They will chase this like blissful non-existence. And if you add to that the impulsivity that comes with bipolar disorder, you get someone who isn't afraid to try something scary and wants to escape their own mind. Yeah. That is a lethal cocktail. So for staying in the realm of mental health reasons for taking heroin, some people also speculate that it could have been the borderline personality disorder Kurt may have had, which is the the theory I tend to align with most. Okay. 
BPD is characterized by intense, unstable emotions and relationships, as well as insecurity and self-doubt. BPD makes everything feel, everything about a person feel unstable. So it feels like nothing is for sure, nothing is forever, and you're just kind of free-falling at all times. And everything is unstable, ranging from their moods to their thinking to their behavior, relationships, and sometimes even their identity. People with BPD sometimes will doubt they even are, are who they are. They, they just, nothing stands on firm ground. Mm. It's also a destructive disorder, and an alarming amount of its sufferers will attempt to complete suicide and self-harm. They are inextricably linked. It seems to destroy everything it touches. BPD is a devastating thing. And anybody out in our listenership who is dealing with it, I, I can't imagine how hard this must be. And I hope you're finding support. And I, you know, I feel for you. It seems to be just the scariest thing. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Folks with BPD are also highly impulsive, just like people with bipolar disorder. But they're also resistant to all forms of treatment, which could create a hell of an issue with addiction. Because you're going to do it, you're going to like it, you self-destruct, so you like this behavior too, you attach to this behavior, and then you refuse to treat this behavior. Mm. To me, that makes the most sense. But there is one more reason Kurt um, himself linked to his heroin usage. He was interviewed countless times saying that he used heroin to relieve the chronic stomach disorder that we spoke about in a previous episode. Uh, Kurt was in pretty constant stomach pain. He couldn't keep any food down, and it was like just just a constant state of stomach distress that he said doctors couldn't diagnose and if they can't diagnose they can't treat it so he just self-medicated with heroin because he found that it was one of the only things that would numb the pain in his stomach Hmm. it was later revealed that the only food on his rider when he toured with nirvana was craft macaroni and cheese because it was like the only thing he felt that he could keep down with any consistency (laughs) I guess it's hangover food, though. It is hangover food. I feel like that's something that it's probably something that maybe he was restricted on having at his house, too. Maybe, yeah. And then he left. And it's probably cheap to get. Oh, super cheap. You know, um, quick to make, cheap to get. Uh, one box can fill you up. But Especially also if you are, if like, you, nothing to you. Yeah. And then also if you have any kind of stomach problem, it's probably not making it better, but it probably tastes delicious. So Probably. It's It's probably not really that hard to throw up either. I mean, I always want to eat mac and cheese. So it's really good. And I have terrible stomach issues. But Leslie I want to eat it all the time. Courtney tells um, a story in an interview about how when they were Nirvana was touring, I guess they were in another country the they brought him food and they were like here's your mac and cheese except for it was like differently made and it had jalapenos in it and he probably didn't want it right? well it like destroyed him i guess yeah. he tried it and it like turned him inside yeah. out and she threw it at the people that's yeah that's so funny <laughs> yeah i know i thought that was pretty funny <laughs> so heroin is a form of morphine that was first used in a clinical setting as a painkiller and it will do that quite effectively just not for long as i mentioned 10 minutes mm-hmm when a person is in unrelenting pain that doctors cannot diagnose it, they, they will often look for their own ways to deal with it. And it's actually still prescribed in pill form in other countries as like palliative care. So if you're in like hospice or something, a lot of times they'll just give it to you in pill form to deal with your pain. Well, if you're in hospice, that's the time to do it. Exactly. But they're like, <laughs> all right, dude. And controlled. Here's some heroin. We yeah. have a nurse for you that's going to give it to you. Dope sick can't be any worse than whatever's going on right now. So, right. But we don't do that in America. 
According to the Midwest Recovery Center, quote, heroin is an illicit, powerful, and deadly drug that has the potential to drastically change everything in your life, including your emotional state, the function of your brain, and your physical appearance. While the short-term effects can be tragic, there are many long-term effects of heroin use that could forever alter or end your life. If you or someone you love is struggling, and then there's a number, we'll, we'll provide resources in the, in the link in the end. Heroin is an opiate that binds to the brain's opioid receptors when it is taken. This process creates a rush of dopamine that is intoxicating and addictive because, in part, it is more significant than is possible to receive naturally. So dopamine is happy chemicals, and if you're a depressed person, you get a sudden rush of the dopamine, you feel a whole hell of a lot better for just a second. This tidal wave of dopamine is what creates the euphoric high a user feels after they take heroin. The brain then develops a desire to replicate this intense, pleasurable feeling, which causes the urge to use heroin again and again and again, eventually leading to addiction and hopefully the process of recovering from heroin addiction. Over time, the human body develops a tolerance, which is very important to note, meaning that, in a way, your brain has been rewired to feel normal only when heroin is present inside your system. The long-term effects of heroin begin once your body has adjusted to the heroin and, and the, the dopamine hit. It's here where you will not feel a high anymore, not even right after taking it, which will cause you to increase the dosage again and again until you feel something again. So we talked about tolerance last week and how if you have like a really high amount in your bloodstream and it could just indicate the fact that you needed to use so much to feel anything. Mm. The long-term effects of heroin ultimately bring about changes in the structure and physiology of your brain as well. And although heroin recovery is possible with the assistance of rehab programs, the impacts on your hormonal system are difficult to reverse. Additionally, heroin can cause a decline in the white matter of your brain, causing problems with cognition, memory, and decision-making. Physical dependence on heroin can lead to withdrawal symptoms, which make you very sick. So in the long run, heroin makes the exact issues most people who turn to to solve a lot worse. And that, that like, dopamine issue, it, it can just make depression more depressing. The lows are lower because, like, you can't get that high even from using. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I find this all interesting because it does create a spiral. We just remember this moving forward. So if you're using heroin for years you're not just going to build up this physical tolerance and addiction. Your emotional problems are going to be just staggeringly worse because of it. Hmm. I found that interesting. Now, while Kurt and Courtney did not begin their drug use together, they certainly didn't shy away from its continuation. Kurt and Courtney, Courtney met at an early Nirvana show. There's a lot of back and forth about when it was. Most people consider it to be 1989, so like really early. Okay. Courtney says she ha originally had no interest in him. Kurt said he originally didn't want a relationship but was very drawn to Courtney. And Courtney is a very magnetic person. She can be outspoken, de outspoken, demanding, and downright domineering, so I'm not incredibly surprised that a man with mommy issues was so drawn to her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, okay. want, you want a domineering female presence. You're looking for somebody who's going to, like, fill that up female authority presence in your life. Like, yeah, a hell of a way to do it. Yeah, that's for sure. And especially at his age, like he's still, he's, as we said last week, he's he's a man at this point, but I he's know. still quite a boy. Yeah, no, his brain isn't totally an adult yet. I mean, mm -hmm. he his brain wasn't totally adult until just before his death. Right. Which is scary to think about because he died at 27. And I think 
currently statistics show that your brain stops its maturation process at 26. Mm -hmm. In 1991, 1991. We're in Germany now. Ah, yes. No, we're in Germany later. Nirvana released their groundbreaking album, Nevermind, and their whole world changed. Nobody had anticipated the runaway success of that album, especially not the band members themselves. Smells Like Teen Spirit quickly became an anthem for lost Gen Xers. The gritty, distorted guitar and raw, disturbing, unafraid lyrics woke up the minds of a generation of people who were tired of pretending to be okay. And Nevermind dropped like a bomb when it did. Mm-hmm. A legion of Nirvana clones began to appear in their flannels and ripped <laughs> jeans with technicolor hair and resting, disinterested face. Grunge wasn't just, just a moment, though. It, it encompassed everything. And with Nirvana opening the floodgates, grunge's muddy waters seeped into every aspect of popular culture. Which is funny because the one thing they didn't want to be was like pop culture. Yeah. But if you didn't live it, it's hard to know precisely what I'm talking about. So, Leslie, why don't you paint a a grungy picture for us? Sure, sure. Okay. So, um, I am talking a little bit more about the fashion, but we'll hit some of the grunge music scene here. Okay. So, grunge fashion reflects the sound of grunge music and the desire to break through the noise and push back against cultural norms. Yes, okay. It's a little bit careless, nonchalant, and effortlessly cool. Yes. So cool. The fashion was started by the musicians, and then the fans quickly followed. The look was first and foremost casual, but it's a lot more than that. Before the grunge look, we had the punk rock styles of the 80s. The darker colors combated the shiny neon styles of an area, though we love a neon color. We love a neon color. (laughs) Though the styles were pretty flashy, so so even though they were combating against, like, these neon colors— Punk fashion was still pretty shiny. Uh, Punk fashion was like everything is silver and safety pins and spikes and leather and vinyl and fishnets and yeah. Well, exactly. So just like Holly said, we had black hair, mohawks, face and body tattoos and piercings, um, chains, cut off sleeves, fishnets, studded belts and leather jackets. Punk rockers were anti-fashion. Their fashion made a statement against it. Okay. Whereas grunge rockers were fashion indifferent. They made no statement at all. (laughs) I find it so interesting that punk was like, we're anti-fashion, except we have a lot of fashion. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The grunge fashion came directly out of Seattle grunge music scene. In the 80s, uh, like mid-80s, I would say, Seattle was shedding their hippie image, but still holding on to the hippie values of counterculture and nonconformity. Rock bands like the Melvins, the Green River, and Soundgarden were, had formed and became the first installation of grunge music. Over the next few years, there grew a tight-knit group of Seattle-based bands that went through many transformations. They were like switching members mm-hmm. or building members, yeah, finding you see people. That a lot. Mm-hmm. By 1988, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, which Pearl Jam was one of those ones, as Nirvana was, that went through that transformation oh, boy, period. They didn't like each well. Kurt didn't like Pearl Jam so much, but Mm -hmm. Eddie better loved Nirvana. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which, yeah, because I think that they played together a lot and they had formed Pearl Jam. I forget what their name was before that, but. Eddie Vedder, like, famously had to, like, walk away from doing shows for a few days when Kurt died. He was, like, demolished by it. Yeah. I mean, they were all, they all played together. They all jammed together. They built bands together. They all Pearl Jammed together. They all Pearl Jammed together. By 1990, Nirvana added 
Sweet Baby Angel, Dave Grohl. National treasure. <laughs> as their drummer, and they released their second album. So you just talked about that. By this time, these bands were playing regular, regularly around the area, and as their songs moved up on the billboards, they began playing outside Seattle and describing their music as dirt, scum, and that's right, <gasps> grunge. There it is. <laughs> Underline it. Grunge with its guitar distortion, feedback, and lyrics that could only come out of an angsty teenager's journal became the new rock anthem for the youths, the scary-ass youths. Oh, fucking youths are so scary. Who were just, like, so indifferent well, like to I was, I was kind of a youth then, so I had a lot of flannels. I was, <laughs> I remember very vividly, mm-hmm. this was when I lived in Connecticut, so we came to uh, Cape May for vacation. Mm-hmm. And I was with my brother in the hotel room, and we were watching a Nirvana music video on MTV. Some of them were scary. And, um, and or it could have just been a live show. I've okay. so maybe not as vivid as I think, but I remember Nirvana was on. Some of the earlier ones are like kind of just them playing. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched all that stuff with him anyway. Yeah, but I had blonde hair that looked just like Kurt Cobain's, and yes. I had my brother um, gave me his. His flannel, so I had like put that on. I think I was wearing like my bathing suit. I probably looked very grunge at this I moment. Love it. My hair was like all messy from being at the beach, and he taught me like the head banging movement. Oh no! So like the rest of vacation, he would just be like Kurt, and I would like roll my. Ah! That's so funny. Oh <laughs> yeah, I still remember that. That's I thought awesome. I was the coolest, and he was probably just making fun of me. <laughs> no, I for sure wore my dad's shirts at that point in time. Yeah, or like my dad's old shirts. They're huge mm-hmm. and like falling off me, and I'd have like a tube top type situation underneath it or whatever. I was, but then again, in nineteen ninety two, ninety three, for where to go like full height of Nirvana. Yeah, I was like eleven. Mm-hmm. So that's like a preteen situation. So I I wasn't like full teen in it, but I was aware. Right. <laughs> of rediscovering Nirvana's music the past few weeks showed me that I was not aware. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, you know, it was there for me. And I definitely remember sitting in my like preteen pink bedroom with my rose patterned comforter and curtain valances watching Nirvana's Unplugged on my little TV. Right, right. Weird, I love it. Weird sense memory I had there. <laughs> well, okay, mm-hmm. so continuing on, fans connected to their sound and lyrics and quickly their fashion, as we just said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fans were now dressing like Seattle-based band members who wore combat boots, ripped jeans and flannels over graphic tees that usually had some other band on them or just like a white plain t-shirt. The style wasn't originally intended to make any statements. Guys like Kurt were living in or near Seattle, Washington, trying to make it as musicians. Under a bridge. Yeah. (laughs) They were living as trolls. (laughs) You would have to answer three questions, and then they'd tell you where they got their t-shirts. Yes. Uh, So they all had very little money. (laughs) Most of their money was going towards studio time and trying to make their album. I just like, I mean, they are musicians. That's just what musicians do. Like, sure. all their money has, any artist has, all, all their money, artists, yeah. it goes towards their craft. They mm-hmm. just make enough for You that. live a real weird life. Yeah. So, so you can do those things. Yes. That left very little for clothes shopping. So, they found themselves at the thrift stores finding whatever they could to f- that could fit or that they just thought was cool or fun at the time. 
It was, as I said before, a lack of fashion. Since they were in Washington, combat-style boots and flannel were big because it's an evergreen state and there were tons of lumberjacks. We spoke about lumberjacks before. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Converse sneakers, Doc Martens, Birkenstock, beanies, bandanas, and jean jackets were also an easy find because, remember, they were just coming out of the hippie era. It's so funny that now... Doc Martens are so expensive. First of all, mm-hmm. I have a pair of Doc Martens. They cost me way more than I anticipated paying for shoes. Yeah. They do last forever, though. Yes. Your Docs will They're be well your forever made. Docs. They, mm-hmm. You don't need new ones. That's um, why they were a steal at thrift stores. Yeah, that's the they still probably are. Mm-hmm. Converse shoes are way more expensive than they used to be, too. Yes. I know. They were like the cheap. Sneaker. They were cheap sneakers. Now they're like $45 sneakers. I know. Minimum. 110 though, is what I just spent for my son to have Converse. Yeah. Oh, what? <laughs> I was going to thought you were going to say your wedding shoes, which those are like custom, so that no, makes those sense. Were, actually, those were a pretty good price, I would say, for custom. What Converse sneakers is your son wearing that are they're $110? Like the trendy, they're like, like the trendy ones. They have like weird rubber soles oh, or something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like spiky rubber soles. Violet has white high tops, and they're like the trendiest things ever right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Mine say bride on them, so is that cool? I mean, you're cool, so they're cool. They have ribbon laces. They're really cute. And blue bottoms. They are really, really cute. I like them. (laughs) Black inside, though. I had to be cool somewhere. We also have baggy shirts and sweaters, graphic tees, dresses, ripped jeans, bell-bottom jeans, and baggy jeans were added into the mix because, again, that's what was at the stores. Um, I always love like Kurt's really ugly sweaters that he would wear. Oh yeah, over his shirts. absolutely. Uh, the style was not only about the clothes, but it was about the hygiene. Fans with Ugh. longer hair were wearing it like their rock idols, messy, disheveled, and like they just played a whole set. Showers be damned. It's just like because they were like, all they, like that's a guy that's depressed, and depression makes you not care for yourself, right? <laughs> and also, they were playing. They were playing a whole show oh, yeah. and running around. They were sweating. Yeah. And they were like, that's part of the style. And yeah. you're like, no, no. they were just working. They guys. were just gross, too. They were living out of vans under under bridges. They're a troll under a bridge. They don't have a shower. Kurt wouldn't wash his hair and then he'd dye it with Kool-Aid, so it would be sticky too. That's so rough. When it's like well, See, that is like a depression, it like is. ADHD. It is. Like just they like people that can handle that mess. It's like I can't handle and- a little bit of jam on my hands. Oh, I don't like being sticky either. I hate I, would hate, I that. hate opening um I get frustrated not frustrated. I get nervous opening honey jars because I'm like, oh my hands are gonna be sticky. I feel that. There is like one, I forget which <laughs> which one it is. There's like one iconic it might have been SNL when Kurt had the pink hair. Mm-hmm. That was filthy Kool-Aid hair. That's so gross. Yeah, and it was like, he's an icon. Look at this thing he did. If you got anywhere near him, you'd probably be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it looks cool from afar. And then from up close, a- you're like, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> up close, it was probably pretty gross. <laughs> All right, so as we know, this wasn't just a male style. We had female grunge bands like Bikini Kill, who I love. Uh, They were out of Olympia, Washington, and shopping at the same thrift stores. Their aesthetic was very similar to their male counterparts, but the women would sometimes wear baggy shirts or crop tops, oversized flannels, jean shorts ripped and frayed, um, the bell bottoms, chokers, natural makeup, uh, no makeup, dark lips or eyeliner. All the makeup, Did, They would makeup. just do whatever they wanted because they were like chicks and just felt like not doing what they wanted to do. Currently trendy frosty makeup at the time. No. Mm-mm. 
Um, any, uh, their hair was usually just thrown up in messy buns or half up styles, usually just kind of looked like they rolled out of bed. And then maybe they'd throw on like the bandanas to like hold their flyaways back. Nice. Like Still that. do that. Love it. Uh, once the grunge look got picked up by fashion designers like Marc Jacob and were Marc Jacobs, I apologize, and were being sold in stores like Macy's, the cost of this thrift store fashion was no longer affordable and thus its decline. Thank oh, you very much. Thank you, Leslie. You're welcome. That was lovely. <laughs> I so remember that being a thing. You know what's funny? So I don't think I, – all right, I, I love a grunge style because I love a flannel. I love ripped jeans. Yeah, but you didn't like being filthy. No, I didn't like being filthy. Well, no, I didn't care about that when okay. I was little. I didn't care. I was an athlete, so I think I would have just naturally done that. So for me, it wasn't so much the musicians. Mm-hmm. It was Bill and Ted. Oh! That's who I was. I wanted to dress like them. Yeah. That okay. was mine. Yeah. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I think I did know. I was like, well, they that's what they're listening to. They're listening to rock and like mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, but yeah, Bill and, so Bill and Ted is who I was trying to look like. You mentioned Kurt's um, sweaters. An, inst- an interesting bit of trivia is that the, like, green fuzzy Angora job that he wore on um, Unplugged, mm-hmm. it's, like, a very iconic. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing. I, it's what you always picture yeah. when you think of Kurt is that, like, T-shirt, sweater, combo, that, and the Converse sneakers that he wore. I think he also wore a ton of layers because he was always cold. Yes, because he was He's a a t- frail, the tiniest person. Yeah. He was, like, this frail little— And they lived in Washington. Yeah, so. where it was cold. <laughs> But, yeah, I think that's why he layered up a lot. But anyway, that sweater, when he died, um, we're going to talk about this woman in a little bit. One of Frances's nannies, um, Courtney gave it to her. Okay. And she has very recently started to battle cancer, and she needed the money, so she was forced to sell it. And she was supposed to will it to Frances when she died. Oh. It's like a really tragic thing. I hope whoever bought it for like $300,000, by the way, whoever bought it like just says like, just give it to Francis eventually. But also it was billed, this is the interesting part, as not washed since the 90s. Gross. So they were like, it smells like his filthiness. Oh, God, that has to smell so bad. Well, I, maybe at this point now it's just like ceased all scent. I have no idea. <laughs> it has like a stain on the pocket in the front and it's mm. like. When you look at it not on his person, you're like, that is a lady sweater from 1987 is what that is. It's yes. not, yeah. not There's what just you thought. Woman named Barb is just out there yeah, like, for sure. that was my sweater. I'm an icon, yeah. Barb. Way to go, girl. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Leslie. That was great. Yeah. Um, there's also a great Reddit feed where fans describe, we're going to talk about Nirvana's music now, and this is a, a, a feed where they're asked to describe it in four words. So here are a few of my favorites. Gritty, revolutionary, raw, succulent. (laughs) Hate the word succulent, but it's good there. Powerful, dramatic, honest, palpable. Dynamic, melodic, contagious, timeless. I just thought these were great little like snaps Mm -hmm. of it. It was really interesting. And unlike their predecessors, Nirvana was melodic. Three-chord punk music can be a little hard to sing along to, but Nirvana slowed everything down and made sure you could repeat it, or at least kind of slur it right <laughs> like note for note um and they did all of this while also screaming at the top of their lungs 
Nirvana's music was different because it didn't beg for your attention like punk music did. Mm-hmm. It didn't shake you by the shoulders. It just quietly waited until you realized that it had been doing some really twisted shit in the next room while you wasted your time with cold hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> I always felt like it was very therapeutic because it's that repetition. That, the and there's words. something very interesting about that. Mm-hmm. Kurt wrote songs with hummable melodies. A lot of people um, make the assessment that he actually was a very talented writer of pop music. Yeah. He just changed it to be darker. But mm-hmm. his melodies a lot of times are pop music. They're Beatles mm-hmm. songs. You know who does that too? Who? Um Amanda Palmer. Yeah. She mm-hmm. does that a lot. She's uh, – they, they compare her to Lady Gaga a mm-hmm. lot. And where Lady Gaga went off into a much more pop mm-hmm. kind of icon, uh, Amanda stayed in that grunge kind of scene. Yeah. and But she does a lot of the same things. <sighs> She's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Kurt wrote songs with hummable melodies but sneakily frightening lyrics. So like you said, there's the repetition, there's the easy-to-hum melody, but it's that thing where like, do you remember when you realized that Ring Around the Rosie is actually horrible? It's that. It's that moment with almost Mm -hmm. all of their songs. I'll give you a couple examples of, like, we'll talk about Nirvana's music briefly, and then you guys can explore the rest of the lyrics yourself. So um, the song Penny Royalty is about an herb used as an abortificant. That word makes me want to pronounce the C differently, so if I did it wrong, sorry. Most people speculated that the song was about Kurt's stomach problems, you know, sitting around holding his stomach, drinking tea to try and calm it down. Eating Kraft mac and cheese. Exactly. But if you're a weirdo like I am, you knew right away that that wasn't quite it. I should clarify, adult me knew what it meant right away when she listened to Nirvana's entire catalog in preparation for these episodes. Mm -hmm. Preteen me had no idea what the fuck was going on. She was just happy to be there. So, also hearing a man sing through a woman's perspective about an attempted abortion is a lot to process. Uh-huh. It's also not something that anyone else would dare attempt in fear of the audacity and assumptions of it all. But Kurt did it, and he did it well, and nobody even knew it happened. Mm. So you're singing the song. You don't know what you're singing. Right. That's kind of what Nirvana did with a lot of things. And people, I don't know if people still realize it. Also, this is a very interesting tangent. Um, Polly, which most people consider to be Kurt's finest songwriting hour, is about an incident involving American serial rapist and kidnapper Gerald Arthur Friend. I hate that his last name is Friend because in a lot of um, places where you read about him, they just use his last name. And they're like, Friend did this. I'm like, no, not Friend. Terrible. And this was a hometown case for Kurt. Gerald was arrested in 1960 for raping and torturing a 12-year-old girl but was paroled in 1980. After being released from released from prison, Gerald abducted a 14-year-old girl at knife point when she accepted a ride home from him at a rock concert. He drove her back to his mobile home, tied her hands to a pulley system in his ceiling, then raped her repeatedly and tortured her with a blowtorch. Eventually, the girl escaped by jumping out the window of Gerald's truck while he stopped to get gas. Thankfully, both of these girls survived mm. and were able to press charges, but... Kurt read about this incident in the newspaper and found it to be the most horrific event he could possibly imagine. And while most people who report true crime, like we do, will tell it through the victim's perspective, Kurt chose to write a song about it from Gerald Friend's perspective. He lays out Gerald's process action by action and casual observation by casual observation of the whole or horrific ordeal. And it isn't easy to listen to if you sit down and focus on the words, but pretty catchy. Hmm. While it is 
Unimaginable to identify with a rapist, Kurtz said that it was a commentary on the need to educate men rather than teaching women how to defend themselves against rape. Showcasing, yeah. isn't that interesting? Yeah. Showcasing the warped logic and thought patterns of a rapist shows that society silently tells men that rape is excusable. Right. Whereas I bet media was just like, how horrible of him to write this song. And <laughs> yeah, some, some of it was for sure. It was shocking yeah. to people. Yeah. And it's supposed to be because it it's it a is. shocking incident. Exactly. In a 1991 interview, Kurt said that rape is, quote, one of the most terrible crimes on earth, and it happens every few minutes. The problem with groups who deal with rape is that they try to educate women about how to defend themselves. What really needs to be done is teaching men not to rape, go to the source, and start there. Mm-hmm. He went on to say, quote, I was talking to a friend of mine who went to a rape crisis center where women are taught judo and karate. She looked out of the window and saw a football pitch full of boys and thought, those are the people that really should be in this class. Yeah. Oh, that's impactful. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. So that's what those, uh, we were talking about this earlier, the female grunge side. Yeah. So like the Bikini bikini Kill mm-hmm. and other bands from that area, especially from Washington, they created this subgroup called um, the Riot Girls. Mm-hmm. And they deal with a lot of that. It was like, it was a bunch of music and lyrics that were supposed to be written about like rape and domestic abuse, uh, depression, and just all these things that girls were going through. Yeah. And young women as well and, and women and just trying to get the word out there. And I think a lot of the men um, in the grunge scene there were also trying to help support these women to yeah. get their voice heard. Yeah. And I know that you will mention it later, but Kurt dated Yeah, I don't really. I women. actually don't really touch oh, on okay. it. He, he dated Toby Vale for a little while. Yeah, so. and she was um, the drummer for Bikini Kill. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure he was. He got some sort of influence from that as yeah. well. And I remember 1991. I was definitely old enough to be a fully formed person with memories and who, who watched the news all the time. We've talked I about this four. before. I was a weird kid. But this is, was not a popular opinion back then. We were still telling women to hold their keys like Wolverine and yell fire when a man tried to rape them. And we still do. And we still are. It also wasn't a time when one might just speak openly and sympathetically about abortions. I stand by the fact that Kurt was a man who thought way, way far ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. Some things he talked about, the general population wouldn't really latch onto conceptually for years to come, but they were crystal clear to him. In this way, I do think empathy was simply different in his point of view. Mm-hmm. He saw some truly horrible things, things that society had artfully hidden under morals constructed by dated religions and the desire to homogenize the human race for exactly what they were. And while he may have lacked an ability to know when he was hurting people close to him, he did recognize on an academic level that unnecessary suffering was all around him. So it's just a very different perspective. Mm-hmm. It's like being at a party and in the center of a crowded room is a person being beaten to death, but you're the only one who can see that. Right. That's a horrible position to be in. Yeah. And I feel like so many artists find themselves with that. For sure. That um, mentality. They have this kind of un- unnatural ability to, to see through things. Mm-hmm. Oh, and side note, songs like um, Polly and Pearl Jam's Jeremy, Soul Asylum's Runaway Train are probably the reason so many people my age are fascinated with true crime. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do some TikToks or videos or something on other true crime songs for you guys if you want. It's all pretty fascinating. And I read all of the stories this week because <laughs> I also have ADD. Back to the point. <laughs> Nirvana had become an overnight success, but I think 
what Kurt never really wanted was to be conventionally popular. While he absolutely wanted to be successful and an influential artist, I think what he meant when he said he didn't want to be the voice of a generation was that he didn't want to be accessible to everyone. He wanted to be understood by like the elite that got him, but not like masses of school-age children, Mm -hmm. which I don't know that he made the connection with like, that's how you get famous. Those Mm. people have to like you. You can't take that out of the equation. (laughs) (laughs) He always wanted success, but Kurt didn't quite know what to do with fame. And that is like glitzy, glamoury, conventional fame. Right. And that's where Courtney comes in because Courtney loves fame. She loves to be famous. She knew she was going to be a star. She knew how to manufacture an image and dominate a room. And she wanted that. She was starving for it. Fame for Kurt was different. It was not unlike another person with whom he had a hyper-complicated, all-or-nothing, fight-or-fuck relationship with. And Courtney was her physical embodiment. I know. There's just this difference of wanting to feel appreciated versus, like, not being able to go to, like, the convenience store to pick up, like, a soda. But his problems were more than that. He – and, again, this is such a conflicted thing because, like, You can't want what he wanted without getting what he got. He talks a lot about, like, how furious he was that people that liked heavy metal like Nirvana. He was like, you're not, they're not the people that are supposed to like my band. Mm -hmm. They're into other stuff. They're like, I don't want, like, jocks and dummies and these people to like my music. My music should only appeal to people who, like, really see into its soul. Well, that's great. But if that's the only people who your music appeals to, you're you're not going to be famous. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think that he fully grasped that you couldn't be both. Right. You know, people like want the Andy Warhol of it all, but they don't realize that Andy Warhol was also like a popularity contest winner, essentially. He was mm-hmm. so popular. So mm-hmm. it's just, just it's an interesting concept to think about. So, Courtney, with her shock of black-rooted platinum hair and self-described, her words, not mine, kinder whore aesthetic, <laughs> Courtney Love managed to stand out in any crowd. Her band, Hole, was the first female-led group to cause a representation bidding war. So that means that um, big-time management bid and and fell over each other to be able to sign Hole. And that was the first time a woman had done that. Hmm. Yeah, Courtney's a lot of things, but she also, like, broke down a lot of walls. She was brash, arrogant, loud, impulsive, risky, lewd, and as aggressive and confrontational as any male rock star had ever been. She swaggered around the stage in ripped tights and distressed satin slips from the 30s with her face shellacked with pale makeup, red lips, and dark eyeliner. She commanded a crowd and destroyed expectations. Courtney was a lot, and she still is a lot. We were just looking at her Instagram. Yeah. It's an interesting gal, Courtney Love. (laughs) She's the kind of girl who will scream and throw things until she gets what she wants. And when Nevermind hit, she decided that what she wanted was Kurt. Courtney was born Courtney Michelle Harrison on, this is just a very brief bio on her, and I think it's important, on July 9th, 1964 at St. Francis Memorial Hospital in San Francisco, California. So there you go. She was born in California. She was raised by a free-thinking, hippy-dippy child psychologist with some real interesting philosophies on, like, a genderless home and which is some of it is ahead of her time and some of it was like pretty pretty sexual for a young child to behold okay she had a lot of sexual freedom happening in her house 
not that I think genderlessness is sexual, it's not, but it's just something that her particular, like her mother's linked a lot of these things together. Okay. That's, that's their own line of thinking. She also had a father who reportedly dosed her with LSD as a toddler. Not okay. great for a developing brain. No. She went through a period as a young child where she wouldn't speak at all. So that's called selective mutism. It's usually when something traumatic happens to a kid. There you mm-hmm. go. Her parents also divorced when she was around 10, just like Kurtz. Courtney struggled mightily in school, often having violent outbursts. And around nine or so, she was diagnosed formally with a mild form of autism. Oh, interesting. This is important. What does that mean to us? Well, not a whole lot yet, but it's going to explain a lot of things later. Level 1 autism spectrum disorder, which is what she would be currently qu- classified as, and still is. Courtney is not, doesn't lie about this. She'll, mm-hmm. she'll still talk about it. And it was formerly known as Asperger's syndrome. That's what she would have been classified as when she was younger. This usually presents in problems with inflexibility, my way or the highway type situation, poor organization, poor planning skills, switching between activities. It impairs independence. They can have poor social skills and difficulty in initiating interactions. They can have difficulty making friends and their attempts can be odd and unsuccessful. So they can like have a different concept of what might get them positive attention, basically. Mm. People with level one autism spectrum disorder can have difficulty seeing how their actions might be perceived by others or what they say and interpreting nuance and conversation. And this is all real interesting when you're talking about Courtney Love because Courtney sounds like her. (laughs) She says (laughs) the wildest things. Yeah. And I don't think she gets how the rest of the world hears them. In (laughs) fact, doctors don't think she gets how the rest of the world hears them. Right. So when it comes down to picking apart the things that she said down to the tense of the verbs she uses and things that... She might consider to be wild hyperbole, but you can't tell isn't something she thinks is factual. That can be insanely problematic, and that is something that happens later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything Courtney said was just just pulled apart within an inch of its life at one point. And I went into this going, oh, man, conspiracy, conspiracy. She said so many wild things. Like, what could have happened? And when I found this out, it felt like... And a door opening into yeah. that. It's just like the fog went uh-huh. away. Yeah. I was like, oh, she really didn't think, period. Mm-hmm. She just said what she was feeling, what she was imagining, what she was thinking. And she did the same thing Kurt did in the form of like revisionism of her life. Mm-hmm. Courtney has a hundred different versions of things that happened to her. Like none of them are factual. They're all exaggerated and they're like beautifully wound stories they're not true. Mm-hmm. And again, that's something where she's like, well, in my brain, I want to look like this. So I'm just going to say it. Right. And that can be misconstrued a lot. I am not defending some of her actions. Mm-hmm. I certainly won't defend all of them. But I will say that, like, you should definitely look at Courtney Love a little differently at this point. Because I, 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 and no version of this story mentions that, which yeah, is that's... wild. Yeah, that was That was insane to me. Not insane, but wild, as you said. (laughs) Why? Yeah, why would that? How do you leave that out of every version of the story? That feels like a very important piece. It also feels like a very on-purpose thing to leave out. Mm. Yeah. Also, any of our fiends on the spectrum, Courtney is also one of the most influential artists of her time. 
And no matter what you walk away from this episode thinking about her, you should not let that from stop you from being super inspired by that fact. Yeah. It's pretty fucking cool. I know. I feel like I I feel like her autism allowed her to break down those walls that it, you were and saying it may before have. because mm-hmm. it was like it was her personality that allowed yeah. like her just being like this is just what I she I'm just gonna do I'm going to say what I need to say and yeah she lacks the sense of what are people going to think exactly yeah exactly my brain mechanics are a little closer to Kurt's so I'm not gonna yeah <laughs> anyway if you want if you like really would like a window into life with level one autism spectrum disorder, please read a novel called Look Me in the Eye by John Elder Robison. He's Augustine Burroughs' brother. For anybody who is a fan of Augustine's work, it is fantastic. And it is a very eye-opening. It's told from his perspective. And it's you just kind of see life through their eyes. And it's it's amazing. It's a great read. We'll link it in the notes. Yeah. If you uh, want to get a copy of it, you can find a link to that in our show notes. So moving forward, Courtney was uh, also expelled from several schools. She was arrested for shoplifting and was in and out of foster care before becoming legally emancipated in 1980 at the age of 16. Interesting fact, Frances Bean was emancipated at 17. Mm. Um, And Courtney's mother agreed to this, by the way. She said Courtney just wanted to go, and so she had to release her and let her go into the world at 16. Wow. Alone. But again— Courtney, I don't think any part of Courtney's brain said, what if I fail? I think she was like, yeah, done, go. Yeah. And she did go. She was a musician, then she was a stripper, then she was an exotic dancer in Taiwan. She acted in several movies, including Sid and Nancy, which was a little on the nose, before deciding to be a rock star and starting whole. Courtney was academically intelligent. She still is. I'm not, I'm speaking about her as though she is not around anymore. She definitely is. I'm just speaking about the past version of her. But she was also emotionally very childlike and inexplicably spoiled. A bunch of adjectives which I could have easily used to describe Kurt last week as well. He just veered off in a different direction personality-wise. Courtney said what she wanted at the exact moment it entered her head. And she still does that, actually. We were just reading her Instagram posts. She is infuriating and fascinating, and I could talk about her all day. And I was saying this to Leslie before we recorded. It's so weird. She's the kind of person that on paper you might think you you find grating or obnoxious, but I bet you a million dollars if you met her in a social setting, you'd probably like her. Yeah. Which is uh, is going to be weird for anybody out there in our listenership to to think of if they have this this angry opinion of her. Mm-hmm. But there is a there's there's a lot to her. I believe there is a reason, even just pe- personality wise, that people are drawn to her because you can't argue that they are. Right. She also was really big in the free Britney movement. <laughs> and the statement she made to Britney is is like big and kind of powerful and it's that's another story for another day but you guys should you should definitely go read that. <laughs> I had to tell Leslie. Keep me on track, Jesus. <laughs> this week's was tangent heavy. Yeah. So about Kurt. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. it's important to know about Courtney a little bit though because yeah, Kurt's for death sure. actually slowly morphs into less about Kurt and more about Courtney as time marches marches mm-hmm. forward, which is unfortunate, but you're going to want to have an informed opinion of her once you get into the rest of this. Okay. And there's something to be said for that kind of confidence that she has. It's intoxicating to be around. Someone like that can feel like a drug, and we all know Kurt like drugs. Yes. The pair began dating in late 1991, and by February of 1992, they were married on a beach in Hawaii with just eight other people in attendance. Dave Grohl was one of them. National treasure Dave Grohl. Mm. 
Courtney wore a decomposing white dress said to have once been owned by actress Frances Farmer, a hero of Kurt's who had a very public and misunderstood battle with her own mental health. But then again, one of the many things Kurt and Courtney had in common was a love of lies and exaggeration, so who knows if that's true. Kurt wore green plaid pajamas. He said he didn't even want to get out of bed that day. He didn't want to go to their ceremony and was quoted as saying he was too lazy to get dressed. I don't think that was it. Depression wears many disguises and so does drug abuse. Laziness is one of its best and most convincing. Mm-hmm. Look at these wedding pictures. I will put them in our photo suite. He, mm. Dave was in a suit, right? No, no. Dave oh. was just in like the short and a t-shirt. Okay. Like standing like, hey guys, hey. what's up? <laughs> There's like the pictures are nuts to behold. I wonder if he had a suit, but that was just like, well, if he's gonna wear pajamas, I'm not wearing any of that. <laughs> yeah, and the pictures are Kurt looks like dazed in a lot of them, and then it'll be like Courtney holding flowers, and then he also has flowers, and he's looking at him like, I also have flowers. Like they're just so I don't know what was happening, but it was definitely there was definitely some drugs happening at the time, mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. But laziness aside, Kurt was genuinely happy to marry Courtney. She was his muse. He went on to write a bunch of songs about her and the love of his life. But just because he loved her doesn't mean that his fans did. Fans felt Courtney was an opportunistic gold digger looking to piggyback on Kurt's fame. And in some ways, she admitted that she was. But she didn't want to be Nirvana. She wanted to be more than Nirvana. Courtney also antagonized Kurt's bandmates, famously entering a feud with Krista Novoselic's wife, Um, not allowing her to come to their wedding, so you'll notice he's not there. Mm. And she also stated that Kurt should fire Dave Grohl, who she called whiny and uninspired. National treasure, how dare. But that didn't seem to really matter to Kurt because Courtney seemed to understand him and his Holden Caulfield-esque hatred of, like, phony people that we spoke about a minute ago. Kurt felt that she loved the real him, a feat that everyone in his life up until that point seemed to fail to do. And... The three of them were going to be a family. Oh, did I forget to mention? On the day of their wedding, Courtney was three months pregnant. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. Also, if you want the full Holden Caulfield, Kurt Cobain essay that I has formed in my brain, you can ask me about it at another time. The parallel <laughs> is uncanny. Remember the hunting hat? Not mm-hmm. an accident. Courtney's baby, or their baby, sorry, was due in August. And in July, a journalist named Lynn Hirschberg from Vanity Fair came a-knockin'. Courtney was Courtney, and she didn't think about a word that came out of her mouth, and she told her everything. Okay. Um, The article uh, later published in Vanity Fair is called Strange Love. I will also link that. It is a roller coaster of a read. So Courtney wasn't really thinking about the comments she was making, but boy, Lynn sure was. (laughs) Journalists had taken to calling them the 90s Sid and Nancy at this point, which a reputation which would quickly turn into a terrible vision of their future. Kurt and Courtney's daughter, Frances Beaton Cobain, was born on August 18th, 1992. A sonogram of, the, of uh, like a yet unborn Frances was also included in the artwork for Nirvana's single Lithium, which is a funny choice for a song title given that it is a drug Kurt never took mm-hmm. but may have needed. It is a common misconception that Kurt was on Lithium for a time. He was not. Okay. Lithium, yeah, I always wondered that because after hearing about some things, but mm-hmm. then being like, I don't think he would have ever taken that then. No. He should have. <laughs> yeah. Well, lithium treats bipolar disorder, and yeah. if you were of the mind that that's what Kurt had, he should mm-hmm. have absolutely been on it. But he wasn't. If mm-hmm. you go back into his medical records or talk to his family, he didn't have pharm- pharmaceutical treatment for any depression-based mental illness. The only right. thing he had was three months of Ritalin. Mm. Crazy. Yeah. That's one of my favorite 
songs by them. Ritalin? Lith- no. Lith- <laughs> I was like, that's not a Nirvana song. Lithium. Yeah. Rumors that Kurt, around this time, rumors that Kurt was dying from his du- drug addiction started to swirl. So he's like pretty publicly always fucked up at this point mm-hmm. in time, especially after um, his pretty public heroin use after Nirvana's SNL performance. This is their 1992, not 93 SNL performance. So he went on SNL, which was actually like his dream as a kid. He loved SNL. Mm -hmm. So it was a big deal for him to do it. And then everyone went out afterwards and he didn't. Right. Which people were like, this is, this was like your dream. Why are Mm -hmm. you not pleased with this? He just went back to his hotel room where he overdosed on heroin. Courtney woke up uh, very early the next morning to find out that Kurt was like laying, I think he was next to the bed on the floor and that he was like a blue-green color. Oh. Yeah, and had injection marks in his arms. She resuscitated him with illegally acquired naloxone, so like the Narcan shot. Somehow she had gotten hold of it. Anything you read about Courtney, you'll find she was extremely savvy when it comes to pharmaceuticals. She knew mm. a lot. And then called the paramedics. Rumors after that swirled around that Nirvana was breaking up. Disaster was kind of all around them. And in the middle of it all, Nirvana was set to headline the Reading Festival in London, which is like a rock music festival. Big, big mm-hmm. deal. But nobody thought they were going to show. Everyone was like, you can't be Heroin McGee two days ago and then come headline a rock festival today. Or can you? Or can you? Because they did show Kurt took the stage in the beginning of their set in a hospital gown and a wig. And he was, I remember this performance. Oh, I remember too, yeah. I remember seeing it. And I had no idea why. Yeah. No, (laughs) no, I didn't know why at the time either. But it's because people were saying that he was like a crazy drug addict and he was about, he was near death, which he was. Not crazy, but near death, yes. So so, someone pushed him on stage in this wig and this, this hospital gown. He stood up, sang a few few lines of the song The Rose, and then collapsed on the stage. And the audience, <gasps> they're like, oh, man, he done did it. Like, he's, he's going to die now. And then a few breaths later, he stood up with all of his faculties and played the most iconic set of rock music yeah. known, known to man. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about that Reading Festival performance as, like, the pinnacle of Nirvana's, like, actual rock shows. I, again, this is, like, something that is so fascinating. You're, like, on the brink of death like looking at it in this horrible state of addiction and somehow you managed to pull that out. Right. Then on September 1st, the Vanity Fair article Strange Love dropped and uh, it it wasn't pretty. Lynn Hirschberg rhapsodized about Courtney's volatile and spoiled stardom. It's all about Courtney. It's, it's all about Courtney. She quoted Courtney talking about cursed heroin use. So again, like Courtney just talked. She just said anything. She wasn't thinking like, this is going to get printed. This isn't good to say. Mm -hmm. She just said it all. She talked about her own heroin use. She kind of like mused about the fact that there was a chance she had used early on in her pregnancy before she knew about the baby. Lynn Hirschberg then went on to make like a a meal out of that line. She also talked, Courtney also talked about using with Kurt and the drunk bid, the drug binge that they had after Nirvana's first SNL performance. Mm. The effects of the Vanity Fair article were enough to send Child Protective Services knocking on the Cobain residence door. Little Francis Bean was taken away, and an investigation was conducted. Kurt and Courtney had to fight hard to get Francis back, and once they did, they also had to hire um, nannies to help care for her at all times because they kind of realized that they were not equipped for that. Mm. They couldn't provide the constancy that a child needs. Right. 
They particularly, they hired a woman named Jackie Ferry, which is the woman who had Kurt's sweater. That's who I'm talking about. And a man named Callie DeWitt. Callie was a roadie for Hole. He's also on the cover of In Utero. He's, that's him in drag. It's not a woman. And he's also a suspected fellow drug addict who people speculate wouldn't report the Cobains for their recreational drug use. So that's why they had him as a nanny. They kind of were like, well, he's not going to say anything if we're bad. Mm. And Jackie Ferry, well, Jackie was like a mother to all three of them. These nannies would take Frances for days at a time when things got chaotic. They would just take her away. Or if they were all in a hotel, the nanny and Frances would be in one room and Kurt and Courtney would be in another room. And when things spiraled out of control in the Cobain's home in Washington, one or two of them would stay there too. So this is full-time support. Right. To care for Francis. And the way the two of them branch off at the time of Kurt's death is very interesting, but we'll get back to that. But for all the terrifying drug use, Kurt was also uh, a man who loved being a father. He loved Francis, and in most photos, he's the one that's holding her. Mm-hmm. Kurt prioritized time with his little girl as much as he could, telling an interviewer that his baby was, quote, the best drug in the world. He tried to get clean. He really did, but it didn't take. And Nirvana put off touring a few times due to Kurt's, like, stomach problems. Okay. And subsequent heroin problems. Problems that he openly admitted made him use drugs, though. The world hoped Kurt might get better, but he didn't. In 1993, Nirvana released their last original album, In Utero. After a preview performance at the Roseland Ballroom in New York City, Kurt was paid um, a visit by a drug dealer. So this is um, a story Dave Grohl tells. I don't know if you've read this one, but he says, after the show, they were like having dinner and a Drug dealer approached their table to make a transaction with Kurt, and Dave Grohl describes him as he might as well have had on, like, a black cloak and a scythe. They just saw him as, like, Melissa's death coming to our table to talk to our friend. So he made the interaction, and after that, the rest of the night he spent holed up in in his hotel room having, like, screaming arguments with Courtney. The band could hear this happening. And the next morning, he didn't come out for, like, breakfast or anything. So his bandmates, so, like, Dave and I, I think... I don't know if it was somebody else. And their nanny, Callie, the other nanny, um, broke down the door of his hotel room to find him slumped next to the toilet. Once again, blue skin with injection marks in each arm. Callie punched Kurt in the solar plexus and he started breathing again. So for those who are counting, Kurt had killed himself fully and was brought back to life twice now. Wow. And we're going for a hat trick. In Utero gave us the songs All Apologies, Heart Shaped Box, and the radio band Rape Me. Kurt was criticized for changing the title of that one to Waif Me so that Walmart would stock his album on its shelves. Oh um, yeah, Kurt responded, people criticized him for that. His band actually criticized that him for that. They're like, we don't fucking need Walmart. They're just a sellout. But he, <laughs> he said that when he was younger, Walmart was the only place where he could buy music. And he didn't want to rob other kids with less advantages of the chance to own Nirvana's music. Now, that might have been total bullshit. I don't know. But it sounded pretty good. Um, Nirvana recorded their Unplugged album in front of a live audience for MTV on November 18th of 1993. It would not be released until after Kurt's death. Nirvana was really best without all the distractions. Watch that whole performance. I, I, like, I can't say it enough times. You'll notice three happy rock musicians. So Dave, National Treasure Dave Grohl, Chris <laughs> Novoselic, and um, touring guitarist Pat Smear. Happy, smiles, bobbing head, having a great time. They're on MTV. Holy shit. They're successful. But then in stark contrast to this, you'll notice Kurt in a green Angora sweater clenching and shifting his jaw. He does this, like, that thing where you, like, 
that you see as a, a drug use tick. Mm-hmm. Definitely does that during the performance. And he makes a lot of like charmingly awkward little clips, uh, quips, and then apologizes all the time. He's like, I'm going to mess this song up. Now this one I'm going to mess up. Guys, how am I going to mess this one up? But he never did, of course. He mumbles to his bandmates through a half smile and plays with the intensity of most people would reserve for eulogizing a dear friend. He is aggressively sad and pointedly melancholy, and the whole thing is arresting, especially the dichotomy with his bandmates. And that's only like what he looks like when he's singing. When he's talking, he's just like kind of an awkward, quiet dude. But when he's singing, forget it. Mm-hmm. National Treasure Dave Grohl just gives us his thousand watt smile the whole time. <laughs> How could we not know who was going to stay and who was going to go? I know. You know? The truth was, even though they had made millions of dollars and Courtney called her husband a, quote, millionaire who should have married a model. She liked to say that a lot. Kurt lived uh, as though he never saw a dime of the money he made. He wore secondhand clothes, bought little to no personal effects, except for doll parts, medical antiques, and guitars. Okay. Loved a doll part. Loved them. Just loved baby doll heads. Had so many of them. I know. And he never went to parties or events, choosing instead to stay in a hotel room with Courtney, use drugs, and order room service. Good times. I, I mean, I like that. I like that life. <laughs> Got a little intense. This was the beginning of the end, though. Nirvana toured with In, in Utero after they released it. Um, this is an album that Kurt had originally wanted to call, quote, I hate myself and I want to die. That's what he wanted the name of In Utero to be. And consequently, there is a B-side to one of his singles that is a song called I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. So they toured in early 1994. They played the West Coast of the United States and then headed to Europe. By this time, Kurt was um, actively talking about Nirvana breaking up. And we talked about that when we spoke of Michael Azarod last week. He was frequently talking shit about National Treasure Dave Grohl, saying that he wanted to fire him, that he was uninspired. In his final interview, which you can see online, it's very strange, Kurt talks a lot about um, how he thought grunge music was over, how it was easy for them to do for a time, but what he wanted to do was move on to new wave music. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> he also really wanted to work with R.E.M., and he was, like, secretly working on a, a project with Michael Stipe that never happened. Okay. And I will never not wonder what that would have been like. Yeah, I wonder. Um, I So I had read a couple of articles with Dave and Chris. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Chris, actually, who said that they were – Nirvana was probably going to take a break because yeah. everything was just so yep. much and Kurt was going through so much. Yep. Um, And so he thought that it would have actually been more of like a acoustic album he would have had to put out because he wouldn't have had anyone else to, yeah. to work with. But he was like, we just needed – we needed a break, and that's what would have happened. But hopefully it wouldn't have lasted that long. Yeah. They didn't want to – they didn't want to lose their band. They no. loved They loved it. Yeah. They Those loved, guys loved playing music. Yeah. Heard and they a loved lot of playing demons. together. They did. Mm-hmm. You can see that on the rest of the band's faces. Yeah. And I even, so, because you mentioned him wanting to fire Dave, right? So that was, uh, Dave actually talks a a lot about that. Um, Really? And he said that from his side, it was more, especially at the beginning, it sounded like uh, Kurt would be like, I want this other drummer, which was, I think, Dan Peters. I'm not sure. Was the name from last time. Um, Their first drummer? Yes. That, Mm -hmm. yeah. Or no, no, no. It was the drummer that they were going to hire. Okay. Uh, but then went with Dave. 
And Got so he, it. he kept mentioning his name. So maybe that was Pat. I don't know. I Pat's get confused by names. Anyway, moving mm-hmm. on. And he says, uh, so Dave right away was like, oh, shit, like, maybe I'm not the right fit. And, um, you know, he's overhearing Kurt just, like, slandering him. On a plane, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michael Azarad has a very famous, like, quote about Kurt slandering Dave Grohl on a plane yeah. within earshot mm-hmm. of Dave Grohl. So the way Dave heard it was more like, I want him to play more like this guy. Okay. And so Dave was like, okay, maybe I'm just not the right fit. And before we get too far, like, do you, you guys just want me to go? Like, if we're not going to fit, I'll, I'll just go. And he was National talking National treasure. To, right? That's how he saw it. I love it. And he was talking, you know, and Dave's younger than Kurt at this point. So mm-hmm. he's just like, I I can go. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I'll just take I'll just, my pigtails and run. Yeah. And so he's talking to the manager. The manager's like, no, no, no. Just like, calm down. We're going to work this out. And then being very mature, Dave ends up talking to the band fully and is just like, what do you guys want to do? Yeah. What do I need to do? And they're just like, no, you're you're the best drummer. It's just I'm just there freaking are, out. I'm having a moment. Kind a of very thing. strange occurrence is that there are also quotes from Kurt like right before this time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's in one of Courtney's interviews where she's like, D- during the during the interview, I think it's in Strange Love, Dave Grohl calls. And she's like, Dave's whiny and needy. You should just get rid of him. That was, I thought she was saying that about Chris. No, she said it about everybody. Okay. But she said that okay. specifically about Dave Grohl in this article. And Kurt says, no, Dave is the best drummer out there. I have to have him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just so interesting. And I'll we're going to get to why this shift may have happened in a minute. There are also whispers that Kurt wants a divorce mm. because his marriage had grown just angry. Right. There were there was so much fighting and and yelling and drugs and it was not good. On March 1st, 1994, Nirvana, though they did not know it at the time, played their last show in Munich. After the show, Kurt was taken to the hospital in Rome for chronic bronchitis and laryngitis. He just damaged the shit out of his vocal folds nonstop. So he went to the hospital and the hospital, (laughs) this is an interesting thing, they prescribe him ruhypnol. A controversial decision considering Kurt's drug history, but in Europe, Rohypnol is prescribed as a painkiller in hospitals. In the United States, it's just for date rapes. Okay. So it's hard for us to imagine why he would have had a whole bottle of it. Yeah. But he did from doctors in a hospital. Oh, man. Don't give an addict that. Come on. And a musician. And a music. <laughs> Don't give anybody that, first of all. Here's 50 roofies. It'll be fine. Just take them when you don't feel well, my friend, the heroin addict. Who probably clearly has tracks in his arms and shit. I'm so mad about that. I know. It's terrible. So on March 2nd, Kurt took the whole bottle, chased it with a bottle of champagne, and then was obviously hospitalized. So 50 roofies. 50. Imagine in stories, if you will, what one does to a person. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so 50 is very different. Shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, his management says, like, they, they talk to them and they're like, oh, it was an accident. He was in so much pain, he didn't realize how much he was taking. Courtney claims later that it was because she threatened to cheat on him, and so he tried to kill himself. But apparently there was a note, and it was neither of those things. Okay. It was just, as he wanted to name his album, I hate myself and I want to die. Mm. Kurt and Courtney, after that, returned to Seattle and the tour ended. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once they were home, their fighting became more explosive than ever, and it culminated in Kurt locking himself in a room on March 18th with a gun 
Mm. Police were called and three guns were confiscated from his Seattle home. Courtney said he was threatening to shoot himself. Kurt told the police he just wanted to get away from Courtney. But uh, whatever it was, he ended up staying in the house. No one, like, took him away or tried to do anything. or They just took his guns and called it a day. That reminds me of, I mean, it's so different, but mm-hmm. it reminds me of um, Brittany when she locked herself in the room yeah. with the kids. No, it's not and unlike that. everybody was like, she's going to cause harm to herself. And she's like, I just wanted to get away from everyone else. Yeah, but Kurt had like a gun in his hand. I know, but still he could yeah. have just been protecting I could have, And then there are, are people that are of that mind, for sure. Yeah. There really are. Um, and the police report, though, for this incident is is easy to find online. You can mm-hmm. read exactly like the typed police report. It's There's no room for interpretation. It tells you what happened. After this, Kurt began to withdraw from his friends and family entirely. He wasn't talking to anybody. He wasn't answering phone calls. Um, and this is an action that is not uncommon for people who end up taking their own life. Mm-hmm. They start by pulling away from people to kind of like create that divide before they do whatever they are intending on doing. And I mean, if one wants to look at it that way, you could also look at his creating fights with his bandmates as something similar. Yeah. He's trying to pull away for reasons. Mm-hmm. On March 25th, Courtney and um, his friends staged an intervention, which is kind of laughable because it's not the kind of thing he responds to. But they did it anyway. Courtney screamed and raged. It was five hours long. Yeah. Courtney threatened to leave him. The band said they'd disband. Kurt listened to what they had to say, then retreated to his basement with their touring guitarist, Pat Smear, and played music for a while. Okay. Courtney, in a move of, like, tough love, said she was leaving. She was going to fly to Los Angeles, and she did, to get herself clean from, I don't know, tranquilizers or whatever she was on at the time. She entered a detox program. Francis Bean and nanny Jackie Ferry followed the next day. Okay. On March 30th, Kurt asked his friend, musician Dylan Carlson, if he could borrow a gun because people had been trespassing on his property. Dylan agreed to help him purchase his own shotgun. Kurt didn't want to do this himself because he didn't want his name attached to the purchase of a gun for fear that he said the police would take it or the people would know he had a gun. Mm -hmm. They purchased a six-pound Remington shotgun and ammunition for $300. The receipt is also wildly circulated. You can find that online. Kurt dropped the gun off at his Seattle home and then flew to Los Angeles to check into the Exodus Recovery Center, which Dylan comments on being strange because why would you need a gun to protect your house when you're leaving your house? Right. Like immediately. He left like immediately. Mm -hmm. Kurt stayed at Exodus for two days. On April 1st, Jackie Ferry came to visit with Francis. Jackie's description of this is very poignant because they didn't know this was going to be the last time Francis was going to see her father. And, And Kurt was like, Put on, a sh- put on a good show. He seemed to be with it and lucid and there for his daughter. He held her and, like, threw her up in the air and spun her around and showed her off to everybody there and gave her a ton of affection and then said goodbye. Then he called Courtney. And um, there's weird quotes from this phone call, but, I mean, we only get them from Courtney, so we don't really know, where he said, like, no matter what happens, I just want you to know that you made a good album, which seems to me to be a strange thing for him to say. It also seems like a thing Courtney might concoct to be, like, just FYI, like, I, I still, he won, I did a good job, and he said I did. Right. But it's, I mean. But it could have been his sign-off, too. Right. Right. If he, if he was planning this. Mm-hmm. I mean, he always said that he wrote all apologies for Francis and Courtney. Yeah. And a lot of people say that, like, they view his performance at Unplugged of that song as, like, kind of a goodbye. Mm. 
After he called Courtney the next night while outside smoking a cigarette, he scaled a six-foot wall and left. Just ran away. Courtney was immediately notified. Kurt flew from Los Angeles back to Seattle, sitting next to um, Death McKagan of Guns N' Roses on the flight. Nice. So we can corroborate that he was on this flight. And it's weird because they they had like a tumultuous relationship. Kurt like shit on on Guns N' Roses all the of time, but they did. used to play together. And like Duff McKagan was like, yeah, no, he was fine. We had a fine conversation. It was fine. He seemed mm-hmm. to be doing well. He was said he was going home. That's it. And at this point in time, Nanny Callie was staying at the Cobain residence in Washington with his girlfriend, not with Francis, not with anybody else. They were just like living. They were just like staying at this house. There's not a whole lot of explanation as to why. His girlfriend is also a rock journalist. She later recounts this and backs all of it up. Okay. And they're the only ones who saw Kurt in these missing days. So if you read that nobody saw Kurt, that's not right. Mm. He did walk into a bedroom they were staying in. Um, Callie's girlfriend saw him. Okay. So he did come back. Obviously, he came back home. I mean, like, and then there are also, like, some of his neighbors reported seeing him in, like, a great big coat wandering around in the park. Sounds very right. Yeah, it sounds 100% right. But Callie and his girlfriend, whose name is Jessica, said to him, like, you have to call Courtney. What are you doing? Like, you can't just be here. You, like, ran away from rehab, and she doesn't know where you are. Right. But they didn't call her themselves. I know. That's weird, too. And a lot of people think that's weird. Callie's girlfriend remembers hearing Kurt enter the house on April 4th. On that same day, Kurt's mother, Wendy, files a missing persons report claiming that her son is suicidal and it is of the utmost importance that they find him quickly. So Wendy's like, he's, he's going to kill himself. I know he is. I, you have to find him. That's what he wants to do. This is his mother, too. Yeah. I mean, but anybody that leaves rehab or has – I mean, that's, that's the fear when you can't mm-hmm. find somebody that is a drug of user. Of course. You're like, what have they done? Mm-hmm. What are they going to do? So we all know that early the next morning on the 5th, Kurt dies at the end of a shotgun in the greenhouse of his home. Callie's girlfriend heard him come home on the night of the 4th. She heard his footsteps enter the house, and then I guess he went out to the greenhouse, but didn't hear the shotgun blast, mm. which is interesting, though people speculate that it was like, in the early, early morning hours, so people would have been sleeping. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're a very sound sleeper. Maybe you're full of sedatives. I don't know. Yeah, I sleep through everything. Mm, I don't. Everything wakes me up. So to me, I'd be like, um, yeah, duck hunters in my old neighborhood used to wake me right the fuck up. No. Nope. <laughs> I fall asleep during, like, the war, like, the war portions of Bless movies you. in the movie theater. Oh, my God. Leslie! Yeah. I could sleep right through them. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. I can't sleep in my own bedroom if something's clicking. No. <laughs> On the 6th of April, Courtney hires private detective Tom Grant ooh, to find Kurt. Now, we all know that by then, tragically, it was too late. So once she hired this guy, he was already dead. Okay. Then on the 7th, Courtney is um, – authorities get – reports of finding someone overdosed at the Peninsula Hotel, and it's discovered that it's Courtney and one of her bandmates. Then there's this big, long, ridiculous explanation about, like, um, she just was had an allergic reaction to Xanax, and that's why she was, like, feeling weird. And also, like, that powder you saw was um, ashes she used in a, in a Buddhist ceremony, not heroin. And those syringes, I don't, I don't know how they got there. Oh, give it up, guys. Yeah, seriously. Francis was with Jackie, thankfully, in the room next door. Okay. So not in the room for any of that. 
but not in medical danger. Courtney is then booked by police for possession of narcotics and released on $10,000 bail by 3 o'clock in the afternoon that day. She then flies straight to Los Angeles to check herself into Exodus. The next day, she receives the call that Kurt is dead. Courtney flies back to Seattle, and we have returned to the beginning of our story. Mm. Then the fans came in droves. Fans making the pilgrimage to Kurt's Seattle home. They couldn't tell you why they were there, but they were there nonetheless, sitting on the curb, congregating in the street, looking for an answer, anything. Courtney would emerge periodically wearing Kurt's clothing and clutching a lock of his hair. Not doing well. She would talk to his grieving fans. She would give them pieces of his clothing. She would, like, go in the house and be like, here's his T-shirt. You loved him. Have it. The next day, April 9th, Dr. Hartshorn declared that Kurt's death had been a suicide. Dr. Hartshorn stated that he had died of a perforating self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head with fresh injection marks on both of his arms and 1.52 milligrams per liter of morphine in his bloodstream, which is a lot. But as we mentioned before, tolerance is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And he might have needed an insane amount to feel anything because he had been using so much. A lot of people like to latch on to the fact that Dr. Hartshorn also re- repeated, said this immediately. He was right away, without much investigation. He was like, this is suicide. I've never seen a more classic suicide in my life. There's a note. There's a body. There's the weapon. There's everything. It's laid out in front of you. There's nothing to investigate. Case closed. People are also suspect of Dr. Hartshorn because he was an old friend of Courtney's. Mm. He was also the assistant medical examiner. They wonder why he got such a high-profile case. A lot of people think it's because Courtney was like, please do this fast. I need it done. Which, whether that's for insidious reasons or not, like you might want your very high-profile husband to not be sitting in the city morgue for a really long time. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's there. It's worth mentioning. Okay. On April 10th, a public vigil was held in a Seattle park where pre-recorded messages from Courtney and bandmate Chris Novoselic were played. Courtney read parts of Kurt's alleged suicide note telling fans that other parts were, quote, none of their damn business. And then she calls him an asshole. And then she makes the whole crowd call him an asshole. (sighs) She seems simultaneously furious and awash in sadness, which is a part of the grieving process, Mm -hmm. especially when you're coping with something as inconceivable as suicide. But also it's pretty shocking and hard to swallow when it's happening in front of a huge audience. Right. How many, how long after was this? This is April 10th, so he was discovered on the 8th. So it's two days after they report his death. Okay, so it's like so fresh. It's really fresh. She's she's angry. Yeah, she's a mess. But, you know, there are people that are like, well, why is she being angry like this? Also on the 10th, approximately 200 family members, friends, and professional colleagues gathered at Unity Church of Truth to look back on Kurt in loving memory. So that's his private funeral. Weird that it was in a church, but all right. MTV released a special report linking Kurt's death to the need for um, taking anyone who claims to intend suicide seriously. So this is one of the first time people are like, if someone says they're going to kill themselves, you need to believe them. Right. Suicide hotlines in the Seattle area were completely overwhelmed with calls about people saying that they were having these kind of thoughts because of Kurt and what happened to him. And a few fans actually took his lead and took their own life that week though the number of copycat deaths by suicide are greatly exaggerated. There were like one or two. Mm. Kurt was cremated also right away on April 14th. His ashes divided amongst several vessels. One was a teddy bear that Courtney took with her. One was a small Buddhist vessel that she put in a shrine that she had. His ashes have been scattered. There's no place where you can like observe Kurt. He he was spread out everywhere over the next few years. Mm. 
Courtney described his last moments to fans, saying that he probably entered the greenhouse and looked out the window onto the sound, blocked the door, shot up, enjoyed the peace for a few moments, shot up again, penned his final words, because it would be taking effect as he was like finishing writing the note, then put the shotgun in his mouth, steadying the barrel with his left hand, pulled the trigger with his right thumb, and that was it. Mm. Mostly, fans of Kurtz were sad. They were shocked, their hero was gone, but the music was forever. Some of them moved on, but others, mm, they didn't have such an easy time. They wondered what, what happened in the days leading up to Kurt's death. How was it that he was in his own home, dead for two days without anyone knowing? This is like the most famous person in the world. Where was Courtney in all of this? And what about Frances Bean? Where is she? What will become of her? Kurt seemed fine recently. He had played a show in Germany, he had given interviews, he was working on projects and engaging in life. They didn't see the kind of person who was ready to take their own life, and they wanted answers. But they also didn't see everything. Right. Mostly, the people who were, you know, loudly yelling for answers were ignored. But little did they know that they would soon find their champion in an unlikely source, the private detective that Courtney had called. Remember Tom Grant? Tom didn't think Kurt took his own life, and in December of 1994, Tom Grant stepped out into the spotlight and claimed that Kurt had been murdered and he had the proof. Okay. Tom Grant's theories satiated desperate fans and angry fans and frustrated journalists. In Tom's version of the story, an angry Courtney Love did not want her husband to divorce her. He said that Kurt had been talking about leaving her and Courtney did not want that to happen. He said that Kurt was in fear for his life and wanted to leave. He said that Courtney then began to search for a hitman to kill Kurt and make it look like an accident. She had taken the note that he had penned a note he had penned to break up with his band, which is what people who are of this mind say the suicide note is. They say it's not actually a suicide note. It was a, a note he was going to use to break up with the rest of Nirvana. And then she took the half-finished note and finished it, noting the portion on the bottom wherein the handwriting looks a little different. Tom says she had taken Kurt's note from when he had his incident in Rome and then spent the subsequent days attempting to learn how to forge his handwriting. Tom also leads us to a singer called El Duce or El Duce. Uh, oh, yeah, this guy. I forget how to pronounce his name because I blocked out this documentary because it's so disgusting. I want to die. Um, and he claims that Courtney offered him a large sum of money to kill Kurt. He is in the English documentary called Kurt and Courtney. They speak to this guy. He is a train wreck. So he says like, oh, yeah, Courtney called me up and said she was going to give me like 50 grand or 30 grand or something to kill Kurt. But I turned it down. Pass, and I passed along the job to a friend of mine who he calls Alan. Some people think it might have been Gigi Allen. Some people think it might have been Alan from the band Alan Wrench. Uh, or that's his name of a different band. Then they suspect that this friend enlisted the help of Callie DeWitt, who was Nanny Callie, who was in conspiracy with Courtney because the two of them were having an affair. And Courtney wanted to um, inherit all of Kurt's money and the rights to his image and stuff because um, if they divorced, she didn't get anything. But if he died by suicide, she did. So she wanted to frame this job up to look like Kurt killed himself. And we have evidence that Nanny Callie was in the house at the time of Kurt's death. Tom says that this was all a big conspiracy and that they had Kurt incapacitated with heroin and then they just arranged the gun to look like he shot himself. Hmm. Okay. Uh-huh. Tom, Tom Grant has a lot of, air quotes, evidence that cannot be backed up by any facts. 
going into this case, all I wanted to talk about was what Tom Grant had to say. But now I think he is a rather despicable man who lied to the grieving generation and desecrated Kurt's memory. Because Kurt's suicide is an incredibly important part of Kurt and his journey. And if you take it away, you take away the way he ended his story. Right. And I don't think that's fair. So I know that a lot of us want to want to throw around conspiracies, but I hope that in providing all of that lead-up information, it becomes very easy to see that that's not what this was about. Right. Oh, man. I know. Like, doing all this reading is what, it was what changed my mind so hard. Really did. I mean, I went into this going, yeah, well, crazy rock and roll murder. Like, the, the wife is this, like, person who says just some of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life and, like, there's mm-hmm. so much weird evidence. and um, I thought that there was going to be, uh, for me, I went into it believing yeah. that he had committed suicide. But I still thought that there was going to be a clearer, like a more substantial reasoning. And, um, and I, do, I do understand, yeah. but I also feel like it's, you have to pull at it so hard That's to make it thing. work. That's the thing. There is more. Tom Grant's website. I will link it in the show notes, though I do not want to because it bothers me immensely. But I will because you're entitled to read all of this. And if you go into this with a full head of knowledge, it looks like the ramblings of a crazy person. Mm-hmm. It does not. It's full of like exclamation points. And it's ended like this. What's supposed to be this like formal investigation of something is ended with, and that's that. I'm sorry, what? We all got exposed to Tom Grant because he is the one that produced that his story is the documentary Soaked in Bleach. So if you saw that, that's why Tom Grant's thing is famous. But Soaked in Bleach is also full of reenactments and not like actual moments. Right. Because it's staging what Tom Grant said he believed. A man who Courtney hired in the first place and then just decided that he wanted, he turned on her mm-hmm. because of his own suppositions. I'm sure he believes whatever this is. Or maybe he just wants to believe whatever this is as a private investigator. It's a little nuts because he was, before being a PI, a member of the, um, was he in Los Angeles? He was like a member of the sheriff's department. He was like a, like a legitimate cop. And like no marks on his record. Let me give you a little, little proof that what Tom puts out there is shady. Um, let me tell you who El, El Duce or El Duce really is. Remember the man that Courtney that claimed Courtney wanted to hire him to, to kill Kurt? Yeah. His real name is Eldon Wade Hoke. Nickname was El Duke He was an American musician, best known as the drummer and lead singer of the shock rock band The Mentors, um, as well as other acts including China's Comitas and The Screamers. And I watched the grossest documentary known to man on this guy, and his whole thing was shocking people into hating him. That's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. He performed... In an executioner's hood or yeah. a Klansman hood, he wore swastikas, he called his music rape rock, and would literally urinate into crowds at concerts. Ugh. Yeah, he was known for saying things to make people mad. He is quoted and videoed as saying he likes to say things to make people hate him. And what would make a grieving Nirvana fan angrier than saying Kurt was killed or that Courtney was Offering up money for someone to murder their hero? Not much. This guy had everything to gain from saying that. He got more publicity than he had ever gotten in his entire career. And he didn't care about saying things like that at all. And he didn't care about lying. I watched this man say that. Right. 
So using this guy as your linchpin and trusty, honest source is is just unconscionable. You can't do that kind of thing. People like to point out the fact that Eldon Wayne Hook was also di- also died shortly after making the documentary Curtain Cor- Courtney. He stumbled onto train tracks drunk and the train hit him. Now, if you can look at more than five minutes of his documentary or him speaking in general and say that that wasn't totally on par with his behavior, then we do not see eye to eye. Right. Tom Grant's like, people Ooh. took him out. They took him out. No. They knew he said so much and they killed him on the train tracks. That feels nuts to me. It feels like grasping so hard at straws. But if you don't have the background, it just, it feels credible. Mm -hmm. Because you can watch this man say these words. But if you poke a little bit, you can also watch him say a whole lot of other insane shit. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wild. I know, but nobody else does that. And the phone calls, Tom Grant says that he has phone calls where Courtney says all kinds of incriminating things. But this is what I'm talking about. They're full of wild speculation where Courtney talks about Kurt killing himself. She, he, um, Tom Grant points out that she misuses the tense of words to, to make it seem like she had already planned something when she was talking about an event that hadn't yet occurred in her knowledge or something. But let's remember that Courtney, as inflammatory as she is, has an issue with communication mm. and doesn't see things the way other people see and hear them. That's true. So that is also very interesting. If you want to place a lot of stock in Tom Grant's phone calls, then you also have to go back and do your counterpoint research into why Courtney may have been saying those things. Mm -hmm. I will let you guys decide for yourself what you think of Tom Grant's conspiracy theories. I don't like them. And I think they defile Kurt's memory. Yeah. Being as he was so linked to what ended up ending his life. In the end, Kurt took his own life with a shotgun, completing the prophecy he had as a child. He was the most famous musician in the world, and he did take his own life. I think that while I'm not coming away with some big conspiratorial revelation here, I do have a far greater appreciation for Nirvana's music and the dark, complicated, distant, confusing, and yet completely relatable person Kurt Cobain was. The music is very different to me now. It's like I can, I can see in its window just a little bit better. And in a very small and hollow way, I feel like I understand it. To me now, 40-year-old me, that is, who has read all the books and fallen in love and had my own babies and chased my dreams, I'm still chasing dreams, and raged against the impossible world in my own ways, Kurt's story is a warning against a race to the finish line. It's, it's like the, the feeling you get in your chest when something in your life happens, but you know it's the only time it's ever going to happen. You don't get that moment again. Maybe you're happy. Maybe you're furious. Maybe you're scared. But underneath it all... In that moment, you're a little sad because you know you'll never get it back. And in that moment, a moment where you should be feeling whatever is happening, you unintentionally realize that life is ephemeral and fleeting. Happiness, no matter how profound, never hangs around forever. And the knowledge that what goes up inevitably comes down can be oppressive and frightening. You have to be blind to the passage of time to endure it. And the people who aren't, poets and prophets and artists and revolutionaries, They have a hard time trusting their own happiness, and they often do burn out before they can fade away. Kurt changed what we're allowed to talk about in public. He changed how the world views mental illness and fame and addiction and, yes, even empathy. We're allowed to flirt with darkness now, and I think that he'd like that. I think that's a legacy he could get behind. I want to close with a few words from 
Kurt's daughter, Frances Bean. Quote, Kurt got to the point where he eventually had to sacrifice every bit of who he was to his art because the world demanded it of him. I think that was one of the main triggers as to why he felt he didn't want to be here and everyone would be happier without him. In reality, if he had lived, I would have had a dad. And that would have been an incredible experience. We're better and worse for the music and the lessons we learned here. And I think Kurt would like that too. Mm. Yeah. That was beautifully said. Yeah. From you, Andrew. Oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's like a very profound thing to hear in the end from his child. Yeah. And I have a hard time seeing her say that and then reading. (laughs) Crying with I know. It's... (laughs) I knew it. I was like, we're going to get so sad because it's very sad. Yeah. It's hard to read that and then go back and read Tom Grant's stuff and and still give it any kind of weight. Mm-hmm. Everyone close to him, everyone firmly believes that he took his own life. Mm-hmm. The only people raging against this are people who are uninformed. Right. So I hope I gave you guys a little bit of what you were looking for in this case. I know with a lot of you, I didn't. And I'm sorry, but in the end, and I did an exhaustive amount of research. Yeah. This is the only conclusion I could draw. I hope that for most of our listeners coming in were, maybe it's not the research that they wanted or thought they were going to get, but Mm -hmm. it's the researcher ending that they that we need are, that we need maybe that they're satisfied with i don't know yeah i don't know i read a passage in dave grohl's new book the storyteller and i wanted to share it because okay. i thought this was really nice um, he said it's when i sit down at a drum set so this would be three about three de- decades later right yeah It's when I sit down at a drum set that I feel Kurt the most. It's not often that I play the songs that we played together, but when I sit on that stool, I can still picture him in front of me wrestling with his guitar as he screamed his lungs raw into the microphone. Mm. You know, because he said, uh, you know, he doesn't play the drums as often anymore. Yeah. So I guess in Foo Fighters, he doesn't play drums. mm -mm. He said it's really hard for him. I can imagine that. Yeah. One one more tiny interesting bit of mm-hmm. trivia before we sew this up. I forgot to mention it when I was talking about the song Polly. So um, Gerald Arthur Friend, um, a couple years ago, was interviewed by a podcaster. And the podcaster asked him about had he heard Nirvana's song Polly. And he went on to unleash a tirade about how the song has followed him his entire life and how people even though he's in prison, have never stopped coming after him and asking him to explain himself after that happened. And I think Kurt would fucking love that. Yeah, that was his point. Yeah. I I just, I thought that was, I mean, it wasn't the guy who was interviewing him's takeaway, but it was was mine. Mm -hmm. So it worked. Yeah. I think that's what's important about those kind of statements where it seems counterproductive to draw out the darkness like that. But it's important to see it so that we can understand it or so that people can look it dead in the face and see what's wrong with it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So, uh, toast. Mm. Toast. Mm. Well, to Kurt. To Kurt, obviously. To Kurt, uh, to his daughter. I mean, to all the 
living family I mean, members. to everybody who felt yeah. this loss yep. because it, His fans, it trickled everywhere. Everybody. And to anybody struggling equally. I think, again, if you remove the suicide from the story, you remove its potency in some ways. And mm-hmm. I think it's such a monumental disservice to do that, especially to people who might, who might resonate with it, who might see what Kurt's death did to people who loved him. I just don't think we should take that away. So that is our Kurt Cobain coverage that you guys requested for our 100th episode. Yes. Next week I will mm-hmm. find something a little more fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. So. Well, we do have one patron to post this week. Oh, we do. Sorry, to toast. Okay, who else are we toasting? To sweet, sweet Olivia. Sweet, sweet Olivia. Yes. That's right. Olivia, <laughs> we love you and thank you for supporting us. And if we saw our demons and agreed to let them in, we, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Quote. Kurt got to the point where he eventually had to sacrifice every bit of who he was to his art because the world demanded it of him. I think that was one of the main triggers as to why he felt he didn't want to be here and everyone would be happier without him. In reality, if he had lived, I would have had a dad. And that would have been an incredible experience.